Yeah. Well, good evening. Great to see you. And uh, if you are here for the first time, many of you were not here yesterday, perhaps because you were elsewhere in your own churches. Thank you for joining us tonight. And uh, some of the locals are taking a night off. But thank you, Sai. When you started preaching, I thought, I'm going to end up giving the final prayer. But uh, what you had to say was good. And I wish I was going to be here to witness the baptism next Sunday, the baptisms. And uh, I hope you'll come on Friday night, by the way. Kellen Jones, who's going to be leading that time, is a, is a great, uh, I say young man of God, but that shows I'm an old man. <laughs> He's not really young, but uh, he's, he's a godly man, and he's going to lead that time of worship. Well, if you have a Bible with you, I'm going to read again tonight the same five verses we read twice yesterday, and we'll read again tonight and tomorrow night and Wednesday night as the springboard of what I'm talking about in these meetings Galatians chapter 2, and reading from verse 20, and then going on into chapter 3. Galatians 2 verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish then? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? And that's as far as I'm going to read. Yesterday morning, for those who weren't here, for those who were but who have forgotten already, we talked about the first phrase in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. And we talked about the fact that Jesus Christ died initially, not for you or for me, but for his Father. Because it is his Father who demanded death for sin. And Jesus Christ was addressing the judgment of God, which is why verses like 1 John 2, verse 2 say, He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, He addressed the judgment and the wrath of God, satisfied His judgment, and as a consequence, we are more than forgiven. We are justified, which is a legal term we talked about. And somebody said to me last night, they said, I understand justified as just as if I died. That was a good one. I'm going to remember that one. Because it is just as if I died. 
I have been crucified with Christ. His death was my death. And that is the grounds on which, as John says, we have confidence before God on the day of judgment. Because in this world, we are like him. Because there was a day when in this world, he was like me. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. But last night we talked about the fact that the reason why Jesus Christ died that we might be justified is not just to clean us up, but that having been forgiven and cleansed, he might then put his spirit into us So the second phrase in that verse is, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And this is what we call the new birth, the reception of the life of God into our own life and experience. I've come, you might have life, and Sam has already talked to us about that a few minutes ago. Romans 8, 9 says, if anybody does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. It's not that our sin has gone that makes us a Christian. It is that the spirit has come that makes us a Christian. That we become alive in Christ. And that's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, to the Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you unless... You fail the test. And we talked about that last night. Tonight, I want to read the next sentence. Let me read the whole verse again. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How do I live this life? The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. I want to talk tonight about living by faith. What does that mean? If we were to compile a list of the most misunderstood words in the Bible, I think top of that list would probably be the word faith. And yet we cannot live the Christian life other than by faith. The New Testament tells us we're cleansed by faith, we're justified by faith, we're saved by faith. In other words, the only way a person may become a Christian is by faith. And having become a Christian by faith, it tells us then we are to walk by faith, and live by faith, we're sanctified by faith, we fight the fight of faith, we take the shield of faith, we overcome the world by faith, we ask in faith, we have access to God by faith, we draw near in full assurance of faith. All those are quotations from the New Testament. So having become a Christian by faith, the only way we can be the Christian we have become is by faith. To the extent, Hebrews eleven six says, without faith it is impossible to please God, And Romans 14, verse 23 says, whatever is not of faith is sin. That tells me two things. Number one, faith is important. 
Every part of the Christian life operates by faith. Number two, if I have a Christian life that doesn't work, in all possibility, the problem is I've never understood what it means to live by faith. Now let me define the word, if I may. If I can define it negatively and say what it isn't, some folks have the idea that faith is some kind of mystical power where if you close your eyes and you really, really believe something strongly enough, your believing it is going to make it happen. I remember once in uh, England, I was speaking at a conference over a number of days, and uh, we were all living in the main uh, building of this conference center, and the actual meeting hall was a separate building uh, a couple of hundred meters away, or probably 400 meters away. And on this particular day, it was raining, which was typical of an English summer's day. <laughs> and uh, I was running down to the conference hall to avoid getting wet when I caught up with a man and his wife walking under a large umbrella, probably a golf umbrella. And I said to them, would you mind if I walk with you under your umbrella? And they said, uh, sure, of course. And uh, simply as a conversation piece, I said to this couple, it's going to be a miserable day today, isn't it? And the lady turned to me and said, don't say that. I said, why not? She said, you should say it's going to be a beautiful day today. I said, but it isn't. It's been raining ever since we got up. The forecast is it'll rain all day, if not all week, possibly all month, <laughs> likely all summer. <laughs> it could be all year. <laughs> she said, but you should say it's going to be a beautiful day. You should say the clouds are going to blow away. You should say we're all going to get a suntan. I said, why? She said, that's faith. Well, that isn't faith. That's actually foolishness. You can stand in a rainstorm and believe what you like and the rain won't take any notice at all. <laughs> but I know some Christians having nervous breakdowns trying to believe things into being. Thinking that faith is some kind of mystical power. If you really, really believe it, you'll make it happen. Oh, you didn't believe it quite enough so it didn't happen. Just believe harder. That isn't faith. That's foolishness, really. Other folks think that faith is some kind of substitute for facts. As long as you've got your facts, you're okay. Get into the facts. Uh-oh, this is where you need faith. Faith is leaping out of the dark, hoping something's true. If it is, you're in luck. If it isn't, you're in trouble. <laughs> and some people say, I wish I had your faith. What do you mean? Well, I wish I could believe it. Why don't you? Because I don't know if it's true or not. And you, you obviously are willing to believe it is. No, that isn't the point. <laughs> You see, facts, uh, sorry, faith is not a substitute for facts. Facts are necessary for the exercise of faith for the simple reason faith has to be in something. It has to have an object. We can't just have faith on its own. Faith has to be in something. It's like you can't just have love on its own. You know, if you, if you met a teenage girl whose knees were knocking and her eyes were rolling and she was giddy enough of food, and you said, excuse me, are you all right? Yeah, I'm all right. What's the matter with you? Well, I'm all in love. Really? Who are you in love with? 
Nobody, I'm just in love. Can you just be in love with nobody? Of course you can't. Love needs an object. Faith needs an object. Faith has to be in something. And it is the object that determines the validity of the faith. Let me illustrate. If I put a lot of faith in some thin ice and stepped onto a thin ice, what would happen? I'll tell you what would happen. I would sink by faith. What's the problem? Is it my faith or is it the ice? Well, of course, it's the ice. All the faith in the world will make up for thin ice. On the other hand, if I put a little bit of faith in some thick ice and very nervously with a rope tied around the nearest tree and a life belt around my waist, having written a note to my wife saying, if I don't come back, I'll be under the ice. It was lovely knowing you. Thank you so much. Goodbye. And I nervously step onto the thick ice with a little bit of faith. What's going to happen? I will walk on the ice. Why? Because I had more faith? No. I had less faith. But because the object in which I placed my faith was stronger. Because the all-important thing about faith is the object in which I place it, and faith is a disposition of trust in an object for the purpose of enabling the object of my faith to do something for me. You're exercising faith right now on the seat on which you're sitting. Now, many of you have been here before, and you know these seats are pretty sturdy. Some of you came in and subconsciously looked around. There's some other bigger people than you already comfortable, so holds them. It'll hold me. And as at the end of that last song, as an act of faith, you allowed your body to crash down, land on the seat, and right now, what's holding you in that position is the seat, the chair, in which you placed your faith. Now, it's not your faith that's holding you in that position. It's the chair in which you placed your faith, isn't it? If you're not sure, do an experiment at the end of this meeting. <laughs> Take away the chair and sit on your faith <laughs> and see what happens. <laughs> you see, you put faith in an object, and what happens is the object does something for you. You put faith in a car, the car will take you down the road. You put faith in an aircraft, the aircraft will fly you through the air. You put faith in God, God will work. And the whole point here of the Christian life is it's not a life that we live for God. He's there. We're here. I'm trying to live for you. That will sentence you to constant frustration and disillusionment. It's the life which he lives in us. So when Paul says in these verses, I have been crucified with Christ, so my sin is done with and I'm justified, reconciled to God. I live, but not I. Christ lives in me now. And the life I now live in this body, I live in dependence on him by faith in the Son of God. So the explanation for my life will not be what I do for Jesus, but what Jesus is doing in me. That'll be the explanation. And so if we are saved by faith and cleansed by faith and justified by faith, it means that anybody who's come into a relationship with Jesus Christ has done so by coming to that point of saying, I cannot save myself, I need saving, but I'm a mess, I'm broken, I'm guilty. I want to thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. You came into this world 
died my death, satisfied the judgment of God, were buried, raised from the dead, and you now can save me. You can cleanse me. And he does. You don't pat yourself on the back. He didn't do it. He has done it for you. But then, having been saved by faith, we are to live by faith, which is the thrust of this verse in Galatians 2.20. You say, I can't live this life alone now. The only way I'm going to live this life is that I do so in dependence upon the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That's why in chapter 3 and verse 1 that we also read together, I'll read it again. Paul talks about the fact that there are many who are saved by faith, but who do not go on to live by faith. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Then he says in verse 2, I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Now, here's his question. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Now, what's the answer to that question? Do you receive the Spirit by works, keeping the law, keeping the rules, or do you receive the Spirit by believing, that is, by faith? If I'm going to ask you to respond, if you receive the Spirit by keeping the rules, put your hand up by the law. If you receive the Spirit by faith, put your hand up. There you are. Look at this, everybody. <laughs> Even sin. <laughs> Pastors don't always get it right. Well, they knew the answer to that question because he just reminded them about six verses earlier in chapter 2, verse 16, where he said, we know that a man is not justified by observing the law. Where is it? Let me, was it verse 16? Yes, verse 6, sorry. Yes, it's verse 16. I, I'm, I'm looking... At the wrong verse. We know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. We know that, he says. So I'm now going to ask you the obvious thing. He said, did you receive him by faith? Or by works, the answer is by faith. He then says in verse 3, are you so foolish then? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? He says, you fools, you big twits, as we would say in England. You've received the Spirit by faith, but you're now trying to live the Christian life simply by human effort. And you can no more live it by human effort than you can become a Christian by human effort. This is a classic mistake. It's a mistake that I made and didn't know anything about in the first years of my Christian life. I came to Christ when I was 12 years of age at a youth event on a Saturday night in the city of Hereford in the west of England where I had grown up in a gauntless youth event 
And at the end of that meeting, we'd been challenged to give our lives to Christ, and I had simply prayed in my heart, Lord Jesus, I don't remember the words I used, but in effect, Lord Jesus, I'm not a Christian, I want to be one, would you please forgive me and come into my life? I didn't feel anything. I didn't know if anything had taken place. If somebody asked me later, did you become a Christian tonight? I wouldn't have known the answer for sure. But I went home, and the next morning I went to the little church I'd grown up in, a little brethren assembly. And uh, I went to the Sunday morning service I'd been to all my life, and for the first time, it was interesting. I went back on Sunday night to the gospel meeting for the first time. It made sense. I thought, this is remarkable. These people have changed overnight. (laughs) (laughs) This used to be dull and uninteresting and boring. Now, suddenly, it's interesting. It makes sense. And I knew I'd become a Christian 24 hours after I became one because I had an appetite I never had before. An appetite is a sign of life. And God put in me what Jesus called a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. I was young, but I had a bad track record in righteousness in lots of areas. And I resolved I would now try and change, and I couldn't. We used to have youth meetings where the preachers used to preach a similar kind of sermon. These, these, uh, these youth meetings were every month or, or something on a Saturday night. And the preacher would usually say things like this. There's some of you here tonight. Although you're a Christian, there's not much to show for it. Now I'd think, uh-oh, that's me. You still commit the same old sins you used to commit before you became a Christian? Yes, that was true. And now you commit some more? That's also true. And you made some new ones? Yeah, that was also true. And you're a mess. And I'd sit there and say, yes, I'm a mess. And the preacher would say, tonight, do you want to be different? And I long to be different. Tonight, I'm going to ask you to dedicate yourself to God. So I dedicate myself to God. God, I'm so sorry I failed you. I promise you tonight, I will live for you. It would last about 24 hours. I'd go to the next meeting. The preacher would say, as some of you here tonight, although you've been a Christian for a while, there's not much to show for it. Think, oh, oh, that's me again. <laughs> you still commit the same old sins? Yes. And you made some news? Yes. And you're a mess? Yes, I'm a mess. Tonight, do you want to be different? Yes, I long to be different. Tonight, I'm going to ask you to rededicate yourself to Christ. I rededicated myself to Christ. God, I'm sorry it failed last time, but tonight I really, really mean it. I promise. It would last about 36 hours. If it was a good meeting on a Saturday night, Sunday would help it along. I go to the next meeting, the preacher said, there's some of you here tonight. Although you've been a Christian for a while, it's not much different. I got dedicated and rededicated and re-rededicated and re-re-re-rededicated and dedicated my re-rededication Nothing changed. One night I got consecrated. It sounded deeper. I didn't know what it was, but it sounded deeper anyway. They said, you can consecrate. So I said, Lord, I I can't even spell it. Consecrate myself to you. And after a number of years, in my later teens, when with all honesty, I was ready to quit and give up. 
I came to understand it is not I, but Christ living in me and the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the one who lives within me. It wasn't that verse that helped me to understand it. But I discovered that was life-changing. When Paul writes this here, he says in verse 6, consider Abraham. And then in the rest of chapter 3 and in chapter 4, he talks about Abraham. He sidetracks a few times along the way, but he talks about Abraham as an example of this. And I think Abraham's a brilliant example of this. You remember Abraham's story, I'm sure. It says in verse 6, consider Abraham, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then he looks at aspects of what happened to Abraham. Now let me just summarize it for you. Uh, many of you will know the story well. Some of you may not know the story. Abraham came up from Ur of the Chaldees, which is Iraq today. And uh, God told him to leave where he lived and go to a land. He would show him when he got there. He arrived at the age of 75 and got bogged down in a place called Haran in Syria on his way there. And in 75, God said to him one day, one night rather, look up into the sky. How many stars can you see? Abraham looked up. Doesn't tell us what he said, but he probably said lots. <laughs> Abraham, I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the seashore. Your wife will give birth to a son and from that son will come a nation and through that nation I will bless the world. And it says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Well, so far, so good. But there were a couple of problems. Abraham was 75 years of age at this stage. His wife was 65 years of age. They'd been married for donkey's years. They had no children. She is now past the menopause anyway. But he said, God, if you said it, I believe you. You will do it. And it was credited to him as righteousness. This is what faith is. You said it, I'll trust you to do it. But then Abram had to go home and tell Sarah. God didn't tell Sarah. And this was going to be interesting. Because it says about Abraham in Romans 4, where Abraham talks about this, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. So he wasn't a healthy 75-year-old. He was as good as dead. <laughs> and that Sarah's womb was also dead. So she is, as I say, past the menopause of 65. Her womb is dead. And in Genesis 18... She's described as being worn out. I don't know why, because she had no children. <laughs> but she was worn out. So here's Abraham, 
who's as good as dead. His wife's womb is dead. In any case, she's worn out. And Abraham has to come home and give Sarah this interesting piece of news. Now I can imagine Abraham coming into the house as good as dead. Sarah is all worn out, lying on the beanbag wherever she lay. And I can imagine Abraham saying, Sarah, yes, God spoke to me today. And what did he say? He said he's going to give us something. And what's he going to give us? You'll never guess. <laughs> it begins with a B. Another beanbag? No, not another beanbag. <laughs> He's going to give us a baby. And remarkably, it says that Sarah believed him. I am absolutely sure my wife wouldn't believe me in similar circumstances. She would at least want a second opinion. But Sarah believed him and probably started knitting or painting the room, whatever ladies do when they get that kind of information. <laughs> and waited. Three months passed by. How, how are you doing, Sarah? Are you, are you feeling any different? No? No? You're putting on weight at all? No? Six months went by. Nine months went by. Twelve months went by. Two years went by. Three years. Five years. Eight years. Sarah, is, is nothing happening? You're not getting funny appetites like eating bananas and onions at the same time? <laughs> no? Ten years went by. Abraham is 85, presumably even deader. Sarah is now 75, even more worn out. And there's no baby. And it was Sarah who brought up the subject. In Genesis 16, you can read it. I'll paraphrase it. Basically, she said, Abraham, did you tell me that God told you we were going to have a baby? Yes, he did. You sure it was God who told you that? Yes, Sarah, it was God who told me that. You sure you weren't smoking something that day? No, no, no. I wasn't smoking anything. It was God who told me. Well, where's the baby, Abraham? I don't know, Sarah. Maybe God didn't know how worn out you were. And she probably said, maybe he didn't know how dead you were. But with the promise of God ringing in their ears for 10 years, there's no baby. And so they make the classic mistake. They dedicate themselves to do the will of God by their own resources. It's Sarah's idea. Why don't you have the child through the maid, Hagar? They've gone to Egypt against the will of God during a famine. And they brought back from Egypt, after getting into trouble there, they brought back from Egypt a young servant girl called Hagar. And by the way, if you go out of the will of God, make sure you jettison the junk before you come back, or when you come back. Because you bring back stuff from out of the will of God, it'll plague you. They brought back Hagar. Why do you have the baby through Hagar, the maid? This is not unusual in the culture of the day. In a household, especially with a barren wife, they might have the child through a household maid. And Hagar conceived 
Abraham's child and gave birth to a little boy they called him Ishmael. Abraham must have been thrilled a bit. He's now 86 years of age. God, I never thought about it. Hey, God, I've been waiting for 11 years now, 10 years and 9 months before this happened. At last we got this little baby boy. And Ishmael began to grow up. And 13 years afterwards, when Abraham was 99, God spoke to him again and said, Abraham, this is 24 years after he spoke to him when he was 75. Abraham, yes. Do you remember I told you your wife will give birth to a son? Yes. Well, this time next year, your son will be born. And I can imagine Abraham saying, excuse me? We've already got him. He's called Ishmael. He's 13 years of age. He's out playing football. Look, there he is. But it says in Genesis 21 that Sarah gave birth on the very day God had said. Now Abraham has two sons. Ishmael, the older one. Isaac, the younger one. Now you remember, I'm sure, that the day came when God said to Abraham, take your son Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. You remember that story, don't you? You ever notice the deliberate mistake that God made <clears throat> when he told Abraham to do that? In Genesis 22 and verse 1, I'll read it. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. You notice the deliberate mistake? Take your son, your only son Isaac. Was Isaac Abraham's only son? No. He could have said to God, God, excuse me, you made a mistake. You said that Isaac was my only son. He is not my only son. I have two sons. Ishmael is my son too. Well, God knew that. Of course. So why did God call him his only son? Well, Paul explains in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 22 in the next chapter, verse 22, he says this, it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. The slave woman was Hagar, the free woman was Sarah. Her son by the slave woman, that is Ishmael by Hagar, was born in the ordinary way. But his son by the free woman, that is Isaac by Sarah, was born as a result of a promise. In other words, he says, when Ishmael was born, he was born in the ordinary way. There was nothing unusual about his birth. When Ishmael was born and the local gossips met in the neighborhood and discussed the fact, hey, did you know there was a baby in Abraham's household? Really? Yes. Well, who's the mother? Hagar. Oh, really? You mean Abraham and Hagar? Yes. Perfectly natural explanation. Old man, young woman, it works. <laughs> and the gossips had a wonderful time telling each other all about this. He was born in the ordinary way. But he says, the son by the free woman, which is Isaac, born as there, was born as a result of a promise. So when Isaac was born... 14 years later, and the local gossips got together and said, hey, did you hear there's another baby in Abraham's household? Yes. Well, who's the mother? 
Sarah. No, no, not the grandmother. Who's the mother? No, no. Sarah's the mother, but she's 90. I know. She's been around for decades, and she's been barren, and her womb is dead, and she's all worn out. I know. What's the explanation? God did it. You see, you can explain Ishmael very simply. Abraham produced Ishmael. You can explain Isaac only by recognizing God gave Isaac. And what Paul is saying here in Galatians 3 and Galatians 4 is that Ishmael is a product of the flesh, which is the old natural self. And Isaac is a product of the spirit, the supernatural. God did something. And you see, when Abraham produced Ishmael, he was not acting in rebellion against God. He was trying to fulfill the will of God, but by his own abilities and scheming and plotting and planning. He tried to fulfill the will of God by working out what actually works, what's logical. Let's do it. And that, of course, is the essence of the flesh in, in, in the Christian life. When he says in, in um, chapter 3, you know, having received the Spirit by faith, you're now trying to live by human effort. Abraham is an example of that. And he produces Ishmael. And sometimes... In the Christian life, out of zeal for God, we can, by our own devices, by our own schemes, by our own plotting, we can do what we think is the will of God, but produce just Ishmael. Not only are they lifeless in any spiritual meaning, but they become damaging as Ishmael and Isaac became enemies. And so the point he is making here, and using Abraham as an example, is that you can receive the Spirit by faith and then try to live by the flesh, by human effort, as the NIV puts it. When Abraham finally woke up to this, Romans 4 explains this. Romans 4 is a, is a great um, explanation of Abraham's experience. And by the way, did you know that Abraham is the third most mentioned person in the New Testament? And uh, Romans 4 gives us clear explanation. And he says about... Abraham, Romans 4, verse 8, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. This is now when he continues to anticipate God giving Isaac. How could Abraham in hope believe against all hope? Depends what the object of his faith was going to be. And the object of his faith was God. And uh, remember that he'd faced that his body was as good as dead, that Sarah's womb was dead. But then in Romans 4, verse 17, 
it says that Abraham recognized two things about God. It says about Abraham, he is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead. Uh Uh-oh. That's exactly what Abraham needs. His body is as good as dead. Sarah's womb is dead. Who's the God I'm trusting? The God who gives life to the dead. Exactly what I need. And then it goes on to say that he calls things that are not as though they are. You see, behind the scenes here with Abraham, when he was given the name Abram first, which means father of many, when he was 75, when he first arrived in Canaan, and after Ishmael was born, God changed his name and up the stakes in one sense, and said to him, no longer will you be called Abram, your name will be Abraham, for I've made you a father of many nations. So, first God thought about him being a father, Abram, and he produced Ishmael in error. The God says, I'm going to change your name, not just father of many, but father of many nations. Abraham. And I'm sure it was a source of great embarrassment for Abraham and great amusement in the neighborhood. When they would say to him in the morning, good morning, father of many nations. How's the fathering going on, Mr. Abraham? Is Sarah okay? Uh, are there any more Hagar's in your home? <laughs> How old are you both now? 99? 89? H- have you got a good gynecologist? <laughs> Father of many nations? And Abraham puts his trust in the God who gives life to the dead. I'm as good as dead, my wife's womb is dead, and he now says, I'm the father of many nations, and the God I trust is the God who calls things that are not as though they are. So it sounds like he's talking nonsense, but I'm going to trust him. And in the course of time, Isaac is born. And in Romans 4.21, it says about Abraham that he became fully persuaded that God had the ability to do what he promised. He looked at his own situation. This is impossible. He listened to God and said, he is possible. Which am I going to live with? The impossibility of what I think about myself and my circumstances or the possibility of what God has promised. And you see, this is how we live the Christian life. When you read the scriptures, there are things that says that you see this is way beyond what I'm capable of. But a verse that's been a key verse in my own life 
is First Thessalonians 5, verse 24. I, I don't go for life verses, but if I did, this would be mine. First Thessalonians 5, 24 says, He who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Not he who calls you is faithful, so you go and do it for him. He who calls you is faithful, he will do it. Trust him. And the reason why many are called but few are chosen are because many of those who are called don't allow him to do it. And so nothing happens. He who calls you is faithful, let him do it. Abraham, this is the lesson that you failed to learn at the beginning, failed to acknowledge and have to learn only by your own errors and mistakes. And there may be some here tonight. There may be one or two here tonight. You're not yet a Christian. And you're here because you've been in a meeting like this before. You've listened to the gospel explained before. But you've thought, I could never change. I could never be what these people are. And you're absolutely right. It's not what you can do or be or accomplish. It's what you're willing to let God do. And God be in you. He changes you. And if you're not a Christian tonight, you come to the cross and acknowledge that Jesus Christ died for me. It was my sin that nailed him to that cross. And you say, thank you. Would you please come and live in my life? It's by grace you've been saved through faith. Not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not, can I do it? I think I can, so I'll try. It's, I can't. God is going to do this work in my life. And you become saved by faith if you're not yet a Christian. Many of us are Christians here tonight, but some of us may be living by our own resources. And what we need to learn to do is to live by faith, which is every day acknowledge our dependence upon him. Because Paul wrote in, in, in Romans sorry, 14.23, Everything that does not come from faith is sin. Meaning, everything that does not derive from dependence on God can only derive from independence of God, and that in itself is the essence of sin. Even though it may look good. And so, you foolish Galatians, and you know, that word foolish, God doesn't use it very often in the Bible. He uses it of a man who says, I'm going to knock down my houses and build, build, and take, build bigger, knock down my barns and build bigger and take no account of his life because the night you say that, God will say, tonight your soul is required of you. You're a fool. He calls him a fool. Scripture calls a fool a man who says there is no God. And Scripture calls a fool a Christian who tries to live by human effort to please God. You foolish Galatians. It's not a life that originates in your strength and ability. It's a life of faith where you say, I can't, but he can. I'm trusting him. I'm trusting him. Abraham came to that later. Some of us have been through the Ishmael processes in our lives. We've messed up. 
but we come to that point and we need to come to that point and saying, God, I'm going to trust you. You're the God who gives life to the dead. You call things that are not as though they are. Well, there are things in my life that are not. You're calling them as though they are. I'm going to trust you to bring them about. Let me say one last thing as I close. This is all very well, but you might say, some people say, I don't have enough faith. You know, one day in uh, Luke chapter 17, the disciples came to Jesus and they said in Luke 17 verse 5, it says, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And uh, I imagine if we were standing nearby and we were listening to this conversation, we'd say to ourselves, wow, these disciples are being really spiritual today because they weren't always very spiritual. They're saying, Lord, increase our faith. That sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But you ever notice Jesus' reply? The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. They said, Lord, increase our faith. He said, no, 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 no. You don't understand the nature of faith. If you had faith as small as a grain of mustard seed, mustard seed was the smallest known seed in the Middle East, I understand about 3,000 way an ounce or something like that. They said, Lord, increase our faith. Give us a big faith. He said, no, no. It is not the quantity of your faith that is the issue. It is the object in which you place your faith that is the issue. If you put mustard seed-sized faith in God, God will work. Let me illustrate this. When I was 18 years of age, I grew up on a farm in the west of England. I came to leave school. I wanted to do something interesting for a while, and I got a job working on a large farm in Zimbabwe in southern Africa. And I flew out to Zimbabwe and spent two years there till the best years of my life. <laughs> and uh, I remember going to London's Heathrow Airport to fly out to Harare, which is the capital. And I'd never flown before. I had wanted to fly sometime, but in England, you don't fly unless you're going overseas. There's nowhere to fly in England. It's the length of the runway just about. <laughs> uh, so you don't fly around England like you do around Canada. And I went to Heathrow Airport, and I was very excited, but at the same time, a little bit nervous. Because I thought sometimes these planes come down when they're not supposed to. And it'll probably happen when I'm on it. So I went to the check-in desk, got my boarding card. I boarded the aircraft. Mine was the middle of three seats on the left side of the aircraft. There were three seats, an aisle, and three seats. It was a Boeing 707, which is now defunct. And I went to my seat, and sitting next to me on my left against the window was an elderly Scottish lady. I sat down. We said hello to each other. And she was holding on to the armrests so tightly, her knuckles seemed white. And she said to me, have you ever flown before? <laughs> I said, no, I haven't. She said, neither have I. 
I said, I thought you hadn't. <laughs> she said, are you nervous? So I could see she was very nervous. So I sat up straight and said, no, there's nothing to be nervous about. She said she had a daughter and a son-in-law and three little children living in Zimbabwe. And she was going to go out and spend three months with them. And she said, if it wasn't for my grandchildren, I wouldn't risk my life doing this. She was really nervous. And then a South African businessman came and sat on the seat on my right. He just sat down, got comfortable, pulled out a book, began to read. He probably flown hundreds of times. Now, we went to the end of the runway, and the aircraft sped along, and as we lifted up off the ground, this lady huddled up into her seat with her head down like this, and I was holding on to my armrest, and the man was just reading his book. And I looked at the lady, and I thought, what a waste of a window seat. I wanted to see out, and she was all huddled up. And we leveled off a bit. She slowly came around and said, oh, it's not so bad, is it? And then we went through a bit of turbulence, and down she went again. <laughs> we landed in Paris. After one hour, she thought we are in Africa. But no, there's a lot more hours to go yet. Now, the point is, the three of us, side by side, each had a different quantity of faith. She, if you like, had mustard seed-sized faith, just enough to allow herself to be persuaded there was a 51% chance of survival. <laughs> mustard seed-sized faith. I, in contrast to her mustard seed-sized faith, had potato-sized faith, a nice baked potato. The man on my right, in contrast to both of us, had watermelon-sized faith. But the interesting thing was this. Although she had mustard seed-sized faith, I had potato-sized faith, he had watermelon-sized faith. You won't believe this, but it's true. We all arrived in Harare at the same time. <laughs> the man with the big face didn't arrive there first, and I came in later, and she came in six hours behind me. <laughs> we all arrived together for the simple reason the issue was nothing to do with the quantity of our faith. It was the object in which we put our faith. Because it wasn't our faith that got us to Harare. It was the aircraft that got us to Harare. We simply put our faith in the aircraft with varying degrees of confidence. The lady with a mustard seed, nervous. We ate three meals on that journey, I think it was. At least I did, and the man next to me did. She ate half of one of them, and I won't tell you what happened to that half. <laughs> She's nervous all the way there. In fact, by sheer coincidence, I met her in the parking lot. Somebody met me, went out to the parking lot, and we met her with her daughter and son-in-law. One was under one arm, one under the other, and they were helping this poor lady to the car. And I thought, she's going to spend the first month in bed getting over the journey. You see, when these disciples said, Lord, increase our faith, he said, you do not understand the nature of faith when you talk like that. It's not the quantity of your faith. It's the object in which you place it. And if you put mustard seed-sized faith in Jesus Christ, he will work. If you put potato-sized 
watermelon size. Here works. But it's not the quantity of faith. Now, of course, there is advantage in an increased faith. And the advantage is this. The more confident we are, the more relaxed we become. Man am I right? Read his book, ate his meals, and slept. He was relaxed. So how does our faith grow? Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In other words, as we get to know Christ, how do we get to know Christ? Through his word. You see, we don't read the Bible in order to get to know the Bible. We read the Bible in order to get to know Christ. That's why Jesus actually criticized the Jews for studying the scriptures. Have you noticed that? In John 5.39, he said to the Jews, you study the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but they bear witness to me and you don't come to me. So you study the Bible to get to know the Bible and it makes you Pharisees. Whereas the purpose of the written word is that through it, you might know the living word, which is Christ. You read the Bible to get to know me. Beyond the sacred page, we seek the Lord, says the line of a hymn about that. Again, to know Christ. I have a Toyota RAV at home. I don't have it here. I have to rent a car to come here, but I have a Toyota RAV. And when I got this Toyota RAV, it came with an instruction manual. And I, when we got the car, looked through the instruction manual. I didn't read it all well. But the reason why I looked in the instruction manual was not because I wanted to know all about the instruction manual. I wanted to know all about the car. Now, of course, I could have read the instruction manual a little bit before I went to bed every night. I could have underlined the bits I liked with red ink. I could have memorized my favorite parts. I could have put it to music and sung it. I could have joined the local Toyota fellowship and gone every week for an exposition of the manual. This week's subject, brother so-and-so will speak on sparking plugs. Great. <laughs> Next week, brother, somebody else will speak on tire pressures. <laughs> if I was a fanatic, I could have studied Japanese to read the manual in the original language. <laughs> then I could, I could stand up in the Toyota Fellowship and say, the Japanese for this means, and I could give them anything I wanted to say, and nobody would know the difference. I could become an authority <laughs> if I studied Japanese. But they would come having read the manual, underlined it, studied it, memorized it, sung it, studied Japanese, that they would come, I would say, I am sick and tired of this manual. Why? Because the manual has only one purpose, that I might know the car. And Jesus said to these Pharisees, you study the scriptures, that you might know the scriptures. And they bear witness to me, you don't come to me. You missed the point. And that's why we 
read and study the Word of God because through the written Word we know the living Word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And the more we know God, the more relaxed we become, we can trust Him. He usually raises the stakes with us too, like with Abraham. You're Abraham, you'll be Abraham, makes it even harder. He does that. He says, can I really trust him for this? Whew, I have. Now, can I trust him for that? And he moves us further and further and deeper and deeper. That happens too. But faith is saying, God, whatever the situation, my body's dead. My wife's womb is dead. You're the God who gives life to the dead. That's good enough for me. I trust you. Lord, you call me to do something. I can't do that. Of course you can't. I'm going to be your source of strength and wisdom and enabling. Trust me. I call to live a holy life. I can't live a holy life. Trust me. I want fruit to flow out of your life. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Out of your heart will flow a river of living water. Jesus said in John 7, 37 to 39, he said, I can't see anything flowing out of my life. Trust me. Because here's the situation in your life. You have been crucified with Christ. Your sin has been dealt with. The justice of God has been satisfied. You've been crucified with him, but you live, of course. But it's not you now. Christ lives in you. And the life you do live, you live by faith in the Son of God. A life every day that gets up and says, Lord, thank you today. Whatever's happening today, I can trust you. I do trust you. It's a disposition of trust. And you find that God works. We, I may say this later in the week, we don't see what God is doing, by the way. Don't look in the spiritual mirror. Am I being spiritual today? Oh, my, look at this. I'm really... Christ-like. You won't see that. But other people do. But we live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So that's for tonight. We're going to pick up the next verse tomorrow night where he says, if righteousness could be obtained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And we talk about the law and uh, its place in the Christian life. But let's pray together. I don't know where you are in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I know many of us are Christians, some of us for years. But it's the subtle and easiest thing to slide away from living in dependence on Christ. And we start to look inside ourselves for the resources and we wonder why we fluster and fail. If you don't know Christ for yourself, I challenge you tonight, trust him. Just trust him. And ask him to do his work in you. Father, I pray for every person here this evening. Thank you that you love each one of us. Thank you you died to reconcile us to your Father. And by the Holy Spirit, you've come to live in us the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We want to be men and women and young people who live by faith, who live in dependence upon you, that the consequences of our lives, what happens to our lives, can only be explained by the fact God is at work in us. Make this real for us, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.